0: Hi, I'm Tage Singh and welcome to Office Hours with Dorm Room Fund where we interview some of the most successful people in startups, technology, and corporate America. Dorm Room Fund is a student-run venture capital firm backed by First Round Capital. We write seed checks of $20,000 into startups founded by fellow students. Since our founding in 2014, we've funded over 275 startups which are now collectively worth over a billion dollars and have gone on to raise over $500 million in follow-on funding from Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, Excel, and others. To pitch us, go to dormroomfund.com. Enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tate Singh and I'm joined by Adele Lee and today we're interviewing Elliot Horowitz, the co-founder and CTO of MongoDB. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for coming down to uh, come hang out with me. So what was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in
1: mostly Connecticut, a little bit of stints in New York, uh, largely Connecticut. Started playing computer games when I was very young because my father was really into computers and he liked making computer games. And so I started hacking computer games when I was very young and um, on and off program through the years, definitely fell out of touch for a while, but then started up again right before college and then started doing a lot of programming in college.
0: How'd you get introduced to the whole, well, you know, coding and programming environment?
1: So originally my dad had written a computer game for me on a Radio Shack computer, you know, no floppy drive, just a cassette tape connected to a TV monitor. And I wanted to change it. And so I did. And then I started making my own games. And that's pretty much it. I just kept making random computer games for myself for the next five years or so. Nothing terribly exciting, but just, like, goofy choose-your-own-adventure games. I think the best thing I ever wrote was Monopoly. wrote a computer version of Monopoly when I was a kid.
0: That was pretty fun. What did your parents do?
1: Uh, My parents were both doctors, so they never professionally did anything with computers. My dad just really enjoyed them.
0: Are there any favorite memories you have of growing up? Did you have any siblings? Younger sister. favorite memories growing up, let's see. Lots
1: of random things i think you know a lot of the things that i like doing were is an odd combination of very outdoorsy things versus very computer technical things definitely there's a couple of days where i completely took apart a, a computer that i was using and then spent about a week trying to put it back together i think i succeeded in the end i may have had some help that was pretty fun I remember, for a moment in time, I thought it'd be fun to like have a computer side business helping people put computers together. Did that for about three days before I realized that you know having a job when you're a kid doesn't actually isn't act nearly as much fun as it sounds. And a lot of other stuff, lots of you know sports outside and regular kid stuff.
2: When you created the games, did you distribute them to your friends to play together, or were you did that kind of make you a popular kid at school?
1: No, and no. There, it was very much. I mean, this was obviously pre-internet, pre-everything. I guess in theory I could have put them on a, a five-and-a-half-inch floppy, and, but I never did that. They are really just for my own entertainment. By the time, you know, network games started coming out, I think I was mostly just playing computer games. You know, the, uh, Doom Two and those sorts of games were the first sort of network games. But it was still like you got to, like, you know, get a modem and call up your friends on the modem, and three-person games were very challenging.
2: How did you actually learn any of these skills? Were you scrappy? Were you going online doing, you know, um, learning classes? Like how did you actually gain the skills to code these games?
1: Well, I remember this was pre-online. Mm-hmm. Maybe there were some bulletin boards, but Darpa. I don't think I was allowed on them. <laughs> so it was it was all mostly scrappiness. I think, you know, a book. Like actually the only way to learn anything at that point was for me it was, you know, actually going to the bookstore and getting a book or two and just doing, you know, actually just reading a book. Which is not my favorite way to learn things. I much prefer the mo- more of the modern online examples, tutorials. I think that works better for, especially for kids. But at the time, it was get a book, follow the examples, see what happens.
0: What Were you like as a student? Did you always get good grades? Were you kind of just slack off in the classes you didn't, you know, that didn't interest you?
1: Yeah, I was definitely not a great student. Really, I was mm-hmm. not. My professors, my teachers, all through elementary school, high school, college never never really saw eye to eye on the value of certain things i i tended to do my own things like i love math i still love math to this day getting me to do math homework was definitely a challenge today like i actually started reading a physics textbook for fun physics i did well in because just it came easy to me and it was fine but other uh, subjects that i didn't enjoy so much getting me to actually do work was definitely a challenge but i uh, really enjoy tests. I'm one of those terrible people who standardized tests. Any sort of tests I really enjoy just for the challenge of, you know, I don't like studying for tests, but going into a test knowing that maybe I've studied, maybe I haven't, and it's sort of thinking of it as a game. That sort of game of a test is oddly satisfying to me.
0: What did you get on your SATs?
1: I don't remember exactly. I think I got an 800 on the math and like a 790 on verbal, but it's been a, a very long time. I... The thing that made me, well, the thing that got me into college, frankly, was like AP tests and SAT twos. Mm-hmm. Cause I got like a lot of fives on AP tests because I took all the ones that my school would let me and I took as many SAT twos as I could reasonably. As a competitive well kid,
2: oh, sorry, as a competitive kid, do you have any stories that your parents used to tell of you and your adventures, you know, while you're in college or high school or middle school?
1: Not that I can think of. I mean, I was competitive, but also not the like I just sort of did my own thing mostly
0: so not the most competitive is there any story of where you and your uh, sister had rivalry where you know you did something bad and blamed it on her like all young kids do probably so my sister is 5 years younger than me so she so I
1: think we mostly stayed out of each other's ways because she was enough younger than me that it didn't come up as much i think siblings who are a lot closer tend to have more a little bit more of that did she go into computer science as well no, not not at all. She's a lawyer. Okay. So uh, a very different direction.
2: What did you imagine your life would be like when you grew up, when you were a child?
1: So I think earlier on, definitely very child-centric. You know, my goal is to be an astronaut. Hasn't panned out for me yet, but, you know, you never know. Well, now still, with still the
0: Mars and Elons and, you know, or yeah, Branson's actually. You never know. Still could happen. Did you buy a, like, the reserve for Richard and uh, Chamats? I I have not. We'll see. Yeah. Like, we'll see how the first few go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then maybe we'll, we'll see when it gets a little bit more sane. Did you have any family but traditions? Not really. My family is much more of an ad hoc. Like me, last minute, kind of, you know, our favorite thing to do is, you know, oh, we have a vacation or like we're off from school next week. Like, should we go somewhere? Should we do something and figure it out? Like, you know, 36 hours before that was the standard thing in our family.
0: What's your earliest memory?
1: I find memories so challenging because, like, you see like pictures and videos and you're like, oh, I think I remember that. So it's so hard to knit, you know, to know exactly what's a memory versus what's like a fake memory. I definitely have memories of, you know, playing games, you know, playing computer games, a lot of things of that nature. Definitely have a memory of when I was very young of watching Sesame Street. Why I can't entirely remember, but I definitely remember watching Sesame Street one day. That was a pretty, you know, exciting day in the life of a 3-year-old. So, it's
2: always a little challenging though. It seems like you were an incredibly scrappy kid. At what point in your life did you realize that you could turn your passion for gaming or computer science into an actual uh, career that you could pursue?
1: Pretty much not until I got a job. When I got a job, even you know, so when I graduated it was 2003 and the whole software industry, the you know, whole internet industry had kind of just collapsed after you know 2000 2001. And so even in my graduating class, a lot of the people, like there weren't a ton of jobs. It was not a great time to sort of go into a, you know, being a software engineer. It was a very short-lived moment in time, but it was that moment. And so it was like kind of like, all right, well, I guess I can try to get a job, got a job. It's like, oh, look, they pay me to write software. This is kind of fun. But it was still very early, you know, it was very atypical for any one of my family. My parents were very confused. Like, what is this software industry? Are you ever really going to be able to sort of you know, afford to like actually have a life. So it
0: was a very interesting phase. So let's rewind a little bit. Before graduating, so you went to Brown. Being, you know, the the prodigy of a computer science person you are, did you get into Stanford? Did you ever think about going there or Berkeley or CMU? Why Brown? It's known as a liberal arts college. Yeah, so I applied early to Brown and got in. So so I only applied there. Why would you apply there? So
1: a lot of people probably spend a lot of time in junior year and senior year thinking about where they want to go and, investigating colleges and thinking, you know, strategically about what's going to help them where they want to go. I really did not do any of that. I went to Va- I went to Brown. I visited it. It was like, oh, this seems like a nice place to hang out. I liked a lot of their theories. I like sort of the open style and it's very a little bit more free form, not as, uh, wrote as other kinds of universities. It was a good distance from home, not too far that it was annoying, but not too close that, you know, my parents could drop in unannounced. So it just kind of fit the bill. I also knew that I was likely, I likely would end up in New York. So I didn't want to go to school in New York. So I was like, all right, if I'm gonna live in New York, I'd like to live somewhere else for college. And so it really kind of fit the bill. I was not interested in Boston, Harvard, MIT, and that group. So I was like, all right, I applied to Brown. Kind of a little bit more than on a whim,
0: but not that much more. Got in and never really thought about it again after that. What were you like <laughs> as a kid? So you're Best friends, were they also? Were you like a nerd and you kind of hung out with that type? Or were you a jock or did you, uh, were you also into you know theater and what were some of your passions growing up? I was an odd
1: combination of, I mostly hung out with probably sort of the gaming nerd crew, although I also did a lot of sports and those things. You know, I grew up playing baseball, tennis, was the captain of the golf team in high school. So a lot of odd things Same. as well. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. What's what'd your handicap? Now or then? Or then? Then I was pretty close to scratch when I was at my peak. Did you ever think you'd make it to Pinehurst or Augusta? I thought about it a lot. I realized that I wasn't nearly as good as I wanted to be. And so I decided to actually get a real job. Do you visit the Masters now or? Um... No, I I've only been to one golf tournament. And I don't find the experience terribly fun. Like you just, it's a lot of sitting around waiting. I'm like, I'd rather be playing than like sitting here watching these other people play. So I actually would much rather watch golf on TV and like have it on in the background where you can see
0: things just going. It doesn't really do much for me. Who's the coolest golfer you've played around with? No one. Any celebrities? No. Do you often go out with your friends now? Um, In New York, it's kind of hard. Yeah, no, I don't play nearly as much
1: golf as I would like. Yeah,
0: It's not a very common occurrence.
1: Yeah.
2: In college, how did you choose to spend your time? Were you the very engaged, outgoing club member? Or did you kind of work a lot on your side projects still?
1: Definitely didn't work a lot on my side projects. Definitely, well, to be fair, I did do a lot of like just hacking for fun and entertainment. Definitely was more into social life and enjoying college. Definitely. But definitely did a lot of hacking for fun. I wouldn't call them side projects. I would call them more goofing off coding. So it was much more of that kind of a style. Writing programs for myself or just silly stuff. Controlling the lights in my dorm room, kind of stuff.
0: So I think there was a story of either Sean Parker or one of the uh, early people in Facebook when they were young. They kind of were hacked away, and they got into the the Pentagon, not not in a serious way. Were you like that, or uh, did you kind of do anything out there, which is you know, and you had that burst of excitement? And you know, no, uh, I was always more paranoid
1: of like, well, <laughs> oh, they're gonna. F-. You know, I always, you know, I, I understood a lot of theory, and so I was like, they could trace this back if I do anything actually interesting. So I was always kind of avoiding that path, and I did a pretty good job of it. I mean, you know, the typical stuff of like talking
0: around the college, you know, network and stuff, but nothing remotely troubling. My friend, my friend Rob, he talks about how uh, his dad, when he was at Penn his 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 dad's friend actually d- uh, didn't attend the major uh, so he basically changed the grade book like his back the systems back then and so yep. he didn't attend any small classes because the teachers would notice you know this kid got an a and uh you know but if you attend large classes so was that were you anything like that or uh no was, it too, I was too scary <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work yeah it just well, it's less work because then you don't have to, uh, to go to classes. Did you go to classes or did you kind of just uh, you know skip the classes and just read the slides at home and take the test? Definitely mixed. I went to
1: most classes that weren't at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. classes you know, are tough. I think I went to a mo- good number of classes, not all of them. There were definitely some of the CS classes that were sort of earlier ones that were very straightforward because I've been programming for a while that I definitely skipped a large portion of. The night, well, you know, one of the great things about Brown in retrospect and why it works so well for me is you can really, there's very little of a sort of a core that you have to take and kind of, you can kind of jump around and take whatever you want. And so a lot of the classes I was taking were classes that I was legitimately interested in. And the other great thing about Brown is you can take any class you want pass fail. And so I took all the classes in CS for a grade. I took pretty much all the classes I was taking for fun. Like I like English literature. I like, you know, there was a great class in like Russian sci-fi. I took all those classes pass fail. So it's pretty easy to pass a class and you know you go and I took them because I like them anyway so I showed up and and passed. I don't know what I, I really don't know what I would have gotten if I had gotten an actual grade.
2: As a CS major, were you really, really interested in gaining as much advanced proficiency in computer science as possible or were you kind of more of the hacky type where you wanted to explore a variety of different top topics?
1: Definitely more the hacky type. Definitely more interested in exploring lots of areas. You know, I like, Doing a lot of so I, I wrote a lot of chess programs in college, and so I liked the you know, those sorts of classes. I Did a lot of stuff in also in data, oddly enough, databases, which mm-hmm. really was random, but it just sort of happened. Really enjoyed a lot of programming language theory classes. So where you like learned about different kinds of programming languages, like you know at the heart, what makes different languages differently. You know where you get to like write a garbage collector, write a type checker, write t- you know, one of the, my favorite assignments in college was writing a type checker for Excel where it basically pulled out the, it took a spreadsheet, figured out what the columns headers should be or what the headers were, what the types should be for different cells in an Excel spreadsheet to see if there were errors in an Excel spreadsheet. So that was like a a very cool, like, that's like, Oh, you could pull that off. You could figure out if you're multiplying apples by oranges instead of dividing, you know, and getting a dollar per unit price and make some interesting things there.
2: Yeah. When you were learning the fundamentals of computer science, were you actually going out and questioning the basis of which you understood some mechanisms? I'm asking because MongoDB, I think, has transformed the way people learn about databases, even within college.
1: I think I've always been very skeptical of the textbook answer. And this is just a general statement about me more than just CS. I've all, you know, Whether it was math or anything in high school or computer science in college, Especially for things that are a little bit more intuitive to me, I've always questioned, like, oh, this is the right way to do it. I've never been a big believer in the right way to do anything. I've always been a believer in what actually makes sense. This got me in a lot of trouble in math class, for example, in high school, where they're like, no, this is the right way to do a proof. I'm like, but this way works too. Why can't I do it this way? And, you know, they might have been right at the end, but I, I needed to fully understand everything. I'm very much a, I don't like knowing things if I don't really understand them all the way down to the root. I, that's just not the way I work. So for, for computer science, it's like was if I don't really understand why this all works this way, my instinct is that there's probably an easier way to do it.
2: Yeah. You were a software engineer right after you graduated from Brown. What was that moment for you to transition from wanting to just be an engineer to actually founding and creating your own business and ideas?
1: Entirely random. So, so right after college, I worked at DoubleClick. I left DoubleClick, let's call it, you know, end of 2004, end of 2004, and started working on a company in January 2005. And the main reason why was it was an interesting problem. I thought I could do it. I had a partner that I wanted to do it with. And it just seemed like a fun idea. It was less about starting a company. I never had, re- it was never a goal of mine to start a company to do any of that. It was just I really like working on hard problems and interesting problems, and especially at that time there weren't just like tons of hard problems floating around New York City, and it just seemed really fun, and so we just started working on it.
0: Did that lead into MagoDB?
1: So that company was Shopwiki. We ended up working on that for about two and a half years, then went, put on a, that on a path to sell, and then. A a lot of the experiences working with data there and a double click led to the idea of MongoDB. A little bit more of a circular route, but it was a, hey, we're not going to work on this anymore. What should we work on? Every idea that we had, we realized that the database was going to get in the way. And the more we thought about building a database for the application we were going to build, the more we realized
0: we were actually more interested in the database than the application and that we should just go and build the database. Can you talk? A, spend a few minutes about you know, for the uneducated like me, how do databases work? What's the difference between relational, non-relational? How you know? Why is Mongo different than everyone else? How is it easier to use? Sure. So databases, you know, just the level set, right? Databases are
1: basically how applications store data. So every application you use, whether it's the New York Times and their what data stored in something, to Facebook and they have data that they you know, all the applications you use store data in a database. So if you think about it, most traditional databases basically look like a very fancy version of Microsoft Excel. Right? Everyone knows Excel, it's very straightforward. You have a spreadsheet, The spreadsheet has columns and rows. Databases, like traditional relational databases, have tables, right, a table is basically the same thing as a spreadsheet, and there are columns and rows. So the simplest way that I know how to explain and what the difference between Mongo and relational databases is walking through a simple example. So, my favorite example is imagine you're trying to store an address book of your friends. So, you're storing it in Excel. It starts off very simple, right? You've got a column for first name, column for last name, column for email address. So, all of your friends, you just do Elliot, you know, row one, you know, Elliot, um, first name, Harwood's last name, you know, Elliot Harwood's email address. Great, simple. Now, you wanna store my address. All right, fine. So, I put, you know, address one, address two, city, state, stip. Fine. Now I wanna store my work address and my home address. What do I do? So now it's like, all right, fine, I can do this. I can do home underscore address one, home underscore address two, work underscore address one, work underscore address two, so on and so forth. A little bit annoying, but manageable. But now let's imagine that I wanna store a list of all of my previous addresses, everywhere I've lived prior to this. How do I do it? Well, unless you're gonna have you know 20 different addresses and have you know 100 columns for an address, it's kind of annoying. So what people typically do is they have a separate spreadsheet of addresses and link the the two together, right? So you can say, oh, Elliot's ID is number one. And so therefore, all these addresses in the spreadsheet, I'm going to just have, you know, the basic address information in the spreadsheet and just add an entry for every place Elliot's lived and just link it to him by saying, hey, this is associated with address, you know, with person one. So fine, Now I've got two spreadsheets. Now, every time I want to look at everything about Elliot, I've got to go to two different spreadsheets. It's kind of annoying. So it turns out that for a typical application, the number of tables, right? So the number of spreadsheets that make up just the profile of a person, not everything, just the profile of a person is about 75. So imagine you as a person or a developer going in and trying to learn everything you can about Elliot and having to sift through 75 different spreadsheets to get that information. It's kind of a nightmare. So what people, you know, so databases have these tools like joins and all these things to make it easier. But at the end of the day, it's still very complicated. So what Mongo does is it lets you store data, and effectively, let's call it Microsoft Word, with some structure. So you have an Elliot document. You say first name Elliot, last name Harowitz And for addresses, you can have a list of addresses, right? So think if you've got bullets in a Word document, it's like, okay, I've got addresses, and I've got this one. I've got an address here. This is going to be a – you put a label on it, work, label, school, label, home, label, old, with some dates on it. You can just do that and the key thing you, know, you can always store anything you want in a relational database the key is you can store it in mongo with this structure and still do queries still have indexing so you can do things fast so if you want to say hey show me everyone who lives in new york now who used to live in connecticut you can make that query fast and efficient and very easy to write and that's what mongo lets you do and at the end of the day it makes developers much more productive. It's just easier to write applications with, easier to evolve over time, right? As things change, right? Every application starts off simple, and then five years later, if it's still around, it gets complicated, right? With MongoDB, it's much easier for things to, you know, for the database to grow with the application than starting from scratch.
0: What were the ideas or intuitions or technologies that came about, you know, at the time or that you brought to the table that, you know, you were able to create this that no one had created in the past?
1: So I think a lot of it had to do with, if you think about sort of the world of that era, cloud computing wasn't quite a thing yet. It was beginning to. The big thing that changed there was you can now rent computers by the month, right? So in 1999, if you wanted to have a computer or have a server, you went and bought a server and had to put it somewhere. In 2005, when we started ShopWiki, we did the same thing. We went and bought servers and racked them in racks. By 2007, 2008, you can start renting servers by the month on a credit card. So, as much as cloud computing is was sort of this huge thing, I think this was actually the biggest thing because now I can rent as many computers as I want relatively cheaply on a monthly credit card. That sort of changed the game. Right. So I can start small, grow. And what that means is people wanted to be able to take data and spread it across lots of computers. But you know, instead of getting buying bigger and bigger servers, I want to take a hundred servers and put them together. And that's one of the things that Mongo lets you do. The other big fundamental shift is programming languages. So in the you know, 80s, 90s, the programming languages were, you know, C, simple languages, and the kind of applications people were building were a lot of desktop applications, business applications. You know, enter the internet era, things like PHP, Python, Ruby started taking off. Java was, you know, the predominant enterprise language. All the th- the common theme between all these languages is they used higher level structured documents. Right? So in Java, you've got objects with a rich hierarchy, Python has dictionaries, Ruby has structures, PHP has dictionaries. All of these things are more structured. And the databases hadn't evolved to match the programming languages. And so it was time for a database to match the way that people thought about coding in a programming language.
2: Mongo, in and of itself, is a very complicated and large of diversify product what was it like for you when you were first building this business to go out and actually educate a engineer or cto and how to rethink how their business was built fundamentally
1: so the nice thing is that a lot of the people that we talked to had the same pain points that we had so when we expressed like hey this is the problem we're trying to solve that resonated very very well with a lot of people the key thing that we accomplished that I think made Mongo take off the way it did is that we focused a lot on that early experience, right? The way I tend to think about products is if you're gonna start and, you know, if you're gonna go look at a product, you someone's gotta get you interested in it in 20 seconds, right? If those first 20 seconds that you lose interest or it's like, eh, I'm not sure why this is important, like, you're gone. Those 20 seconds earn you the right to ask them to spend two minutes looking at your product. Those two minutes have to be interesting enough to get you to spend 10 minutes. Right? And so if we spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what is a 10-minute experience? What is the first 10 minutes like with Mongo? So everything from downloading, you've got to download it very easily. You've got to get it started really easily. You've got to understand the value proposition really easily. And we did a really, we were sort of obsessed with how do we make that first 10 minutes as good as we possibly could. And so then you take these people who have been having the same kinds of pains that we had, tie that together with a product that really expressed itself in the first 10 minutes, and that becomes a very powerful combination.
0: What were your first inle- investors like? Did you need money to start this product? What were the what did they say in the pitch? Talk us through the whole thing.
1: Yeah, so we definitely needed money to get this thing going. You know, wide
0: servers or
1: no, not servers at all. It's just databases are big, complex products, and you know, it took a long time to get to the product to where it needed to be. Um, that just required a lot of engineers. You know, some products you can you know with a, a few person years of effort you can get something pretty reasonable. You know, databases unfortunately take a lot more. And again, the, the the first investor was, I'm not sure if he's an engineer by training, but he certainly is a programmer by entertainment. Who was he a VC Albert Wenger from USV. Mm-hmm. So he definitely, like, his first thing was like, well, let me go play with it, right? Let me be a developer on it. And he had a lot of the same pains with databases and platforms that we had also. So again, that sort of resonated very much with him. It was very easy to convince him that this was a thing worth doing. And then it was around, hey, do you, you, know, do you have the right ideas? And he liked what we were doing, and then he was our only investor for about about a year and a half.
0: Why did you ask more VCs, and they just weren't that interested, or did you feel like you had uh, enough funding? Yeah, to... we had
1: enough funding for the first year and a half. That was, and then we were like, okay, now it's time to start hiring some people.
0: And then who'd you uh, go to next?
1: So the next was the next investor was Flybridge. Uh, they're in Boston. has uh, named Chip Hazard, and he also is. Again, I don't know if he's a software engineer by training, but certainly is very close to the software industry. Has done a lot of investment in the software industry, and got the value proposition immediately. We were things were just starting to get interesting from the sort of adoption side. They hadn't really taken off, but it was, but you know, it got became interesting. And again, he understood the pain both from him, you know, himself, and from all of the companies that he was investing in were going through similar kinds of pains that made us want to create Mongo. So it became a pretty straightforward thing for him.
2: What was your perspective like as a CTO to go through through this fundraising process especially for a very niche product that you know I think is very very much complicated and requires a lot of integration with the company itself were you the kind of person who wanted to scale this up very very fast or focused more on perfecting a few customer experiences
1: The thing that I was really obsessed with the first few years was trying to give everyone who started to use MongoDB the best possible experience. And so, like, the first three years, I spent, you know, every possible minute helping people in user forums, responding to emails, helping people out on IRC. It was very much a, if you're going to use MongoDB, I'm going to make it my mission to make you successful. And that's the way I thought about my job, whether that meant hiring more people or scaling faster or writing code or just doing support, like... That was what I cared about, So how do I make everyone using Mongo successful?
0: So let's uh, wrap up with some quick questions. But before we get started, since you talked about customer support and Mm -hmm. whatnot, whatnot, do you ever get recognized on the street? Once every two years. Oh, what if you go to like Palo Alto or Cupertino? Is it more uh, so there or? I don't spend a lot of time just out walking around in Palo Alto and Cupertino. Mm -hmm. And, you know,
1: one of the great things about New York is it is such a diverse place in terms of industry. There is not a huge pile of software engineers sitting in New York. And there's a lot of them, but there's a lot of other people in New York as well.
0: Got Um, it. Okay, so our first rapid fire question. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? New York. Second city. (laughs) Except
1: New York. That's a tough one. So my favorite- So why New York, I guess? Why? So I love interesting people. I love great food. I love great culture. New York's got all those things. New York also has great transportation public transportation. I can also get on a plane from New York and go anywhere in the world better than I think anywhere else in the on the world. So I can literally go anywhere I want from New York and it's just a great place to be. If I had to, if I had to if you make me choose a second city, so my favorite the only thing New York's missing is great beaches and better weather. So it'd be a tough choice between Sydney, Barcelona and Tel Aviv.
0: Interesting Tel Aviv obviously is a
1: All three good tech scenes Great food, great culture, great beaches—you can combine all those three th- those things. It becomes a pretty potent combination.
2: If you could live in any sitcom, which one would it be?
1: That's a interesting question. In any sitcom or TV show, I mean, Star Trek could be fun because you got lots of cool toys. It's not really a sitcom.
0: Yeah, I guess it counts though. All right, great. If you had your own talk <laughs> show, who'd your first three guests be? What's the talk show about? Whatever whatever you want. want? Yeah. So I guess what would the topic be and then who would your guests be? And Um, it could could be dead or alive. Interesting.
1: So I'm, you know, in terms of things I'm, you know, when I'm not thinking about databases, uh, the thing I'm thinking a lot about these days is climate change and that area. So I think in that space, I'd be pretty interested in anyone who really thinks about we you know, and it really comes down to, you know, who's gonna help produce the least amount of carbon generating energy and carbon capture. So, like, you know, some cool physics people, you know, whether it's Einstein or Richard Feynman, I think they would be pretty high up there. Love to see if Feynman has you know could take modern technology and do
0: something interesting with it. And then from history, that's a tough one. Speaking of, you know, eco friendly and other successful tech people, have you met Elon Musk? I have not. We've got a few mutual friends, but apparently he's a pretty busy guy. Do you have a Tesla? <laughs> Oh, well, you don't really drive in New York, Yeah, I do not have a Tesla. I
1: would consider getting one, though. If I was going to buy a car now, I'd probably buy a Tesla.
2: Would you rather have a rewind button in your life or a pause button? Pause. Why is that?
1: I thought i get to pause. Um, (laughs) Pause. I don't know. Things are pretty fun right now. Mm -hmm. You know, regrets are an interesting thing because you never know. You never know what mistake you – everyone makes mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes. You never Mm -hmm. know what mistake you made led to something – Good happening. Mistakes often lead to better things in the future. So I think, you know, would be kind of fun. A quick a aside.
0: quick aside from that, obviously things are doing really well with the, you know, the company and the financials. Do you ever follow the stock price on a on a monthly basis, yearly? When do you take a look? Do you ever kind of it's impossible uh, for it not to enter my
1: my like mind once a day. People talk about it, whether it's people here, whether it just comes up because of something random in the business. Whether there's a friend of mine who just says something, it's impossible for not to, not like an hourly reminder, but like it, it's all the time.
0: And when the price goes down, obviously there's fluctuations that you can't yep. control, related, unrelated to the long-term price of the business, yep. fu- fundamentals. But you know, let's say it goes down a few percentage points, do you kind of a little? Does it kind of stick in your mind a little bit? Is it like a the point first of time? Did,
1: you know, the first day it dropped a lot. I was like, oh, that was annoying. But now it, fl- you know, for better or for worse, it's fluctuated a lot in the last year, so you get pretty used to it.
0: Got it. What's the scariest thing you've ever done for fun? Scariest
1: thing I've ever done for fun. I've done some pretty interesting scuba dives, you know, diving like a blue hole or down a wall where, you know, some walls are scary where it's like, oh, you can dive down to 100 feet. But then if you, you know, you can just look down into the abyss of, you know, 2,000 feet and you know that you can just, you could keep going, but you just got to be a little careful.
0: Yeah. Well, well, what an interesting note to end on. Thanks so much, Elliot, for taking the time to chat with us here today. Thanks for coming down and hanging out with me.